Greet you each this morning in the worthy name of Christ. We gather in His honor and for His glory. Our passage this morning is Mark 1, verses 21 to 28. The passage just read in Acts is simply an example of what I think the goal of what we're attempting to look at this morning is. The apostles in that account modeled well the way in which we represent Christ. The way in which we are to speak about Christ. The way in which we are to represent Christ. And we also see the scribes and the rulers and the Pharisees playing with Peter and John the same games that they played with Jesus. Proposing the same religion of earthly power and earthly intimidation that they attempted with Jesus. Again, our text is Mark 1, verses 21 to 28, and I'll read at this time. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee." This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we open your word and as we read and as we seek to understand, pray that you would grant us wisdom. Pray that you would open our hearts to hear the Spirit's words through your written word. Guide our time here and may all be to your glory and honor. We pray this through Christ. The key verse that we would like to consider this morning is verse 21. Um, I think it's kind of a central verse there and uh, central to the theme that we'd like to explore. And that is, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as a scribe. So we continue to unfold the person of Christ here in Mark. One of the first things that we see is that Jesus was quite different from any other religious leader they had seen and is today quite different than any religious leader the world has seen. He wasn't respected just because he was authoritative speaking 
He wasn't respected because he was a good orator. He wasn't respected because he was entertaining. He probably was all of those things at certain times. But what astonished them was his authority. Was the fact that he represented himself as someone the world had never seen. Jesus is the only human in human history to propose a religion in which he's not merely a prophet or a teacher. To propose a deity not apart from himself, but to propose himself as that deity. Jesus represents himself as the Son of God. And we see that even the evil spirit that was cast out recognized that that's who Jesus was. Because of that, the people here are clear that there's something different about Jesus and there's something different about the way he teaches versus the way the scribes and Pharisees teach. So this morning we're going to consider what was different about Jesus' teaching. Who were the scribes and why was Jesus' teaching different from them? And then to consider what this means for us. Can we see how Jesus taught and then follow in that example? First, I think we'll consider the scribes. Historically, the scribes were a specific group of people, um, and their history kind of began at the time of Ezra. As you know, Ezra was a prophet around the time of Nehemiah, and uh, in Nehemiah 8, we have a scene described where Ezra presents the Word of God to the people, and the people desired the Word of God from Ezra. And it says that he spoke the words and he gave the sense of it. In other words, Ezra was simply a preacher. Someone who carefully held the words of God and explained them to people. And so began the scribes. It's thought that Ezra even started uh, schools of type that taught men how to act as scribes. That educated them in the Word of God, educated them in the explaining of it, educated them to handle the Scriptures accurately. The scribes were also seemingly tasked with copying the Word of God manually and and being very careful that it was copied accurately. The Gospel writer Matthew refers to them as teachers of the law or lawyers those who were familiar with the words of God. Over time, though, it appears that these scribes came to be less of a spiritual authority and more of a political organization. It appears that they used their expertise and their position to make much of themselves and not God. Instead of becoming a friend of God and His Word, they became friends with kings and governors and high-ranking people. 
Instead of pointing people to God in His worship, they reminded people of their knowledge and their understanding and their position and their authority. As in our uh, modern academia, the authority of truth and learning was not a truth that was outside, but a truth that is inside, a truth that's ascribed to he who can make the best case. He who is brightest and smartest and comes up with the newest thinking is the one who is revered. We see the scribes often in the Gospels. And so I'd like us to interact a little bit with some of those examples. In Matthew 2, uh, verse 4, we see that the scribes were advisors to Herod as to where the Messiah was to be born. Now you would think, if they were well-versed in the Scriptures, and they knew that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, that they would be the ones that would want to investigate. That they would be eager to see this Messiah. In Matthew 9, we see them standing in judgment over Jesus. They regarded him as a blasphemer. So enamored were they with themselves that they regarded the Savior as a sinner. They were legalists in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7 where they inquired as to why the disciples disregarded their Sabbath laws. It really is quite silly in the presence of the Messiah to ask Him to tell His followers to wash their hands. In the presence of the Son of God to say, tell your guys to wash their hands. You're breaking our rules. In Mark 11 we see them conniving to destroy Jesus because he had captured the attention of the crowds. Again, these scribes had a position that was politically connected. They were friends with the Romans. They were normally accepted by people. And Jesus was simply a threat to them, a threat that was to be squashed. Numerous times we see them interrogating Jesus, attempting to catch him going against their rules and seeking to turn the people against him. All of these manufactured questions attempted to ensnare Jesus. Do we pay taxes or don't we? Whose wife will she be in eternity if she's had multiple husbands here on earth? Silly things meant to entrap. In a way, the scribes had created their own religion. The authority was invested in themselves and in their friends. The reality that we see in the scribes show that the very people who should have recognized Jesus those who should have been hungry to follow him were the ones who rejected him. 
And often the Christian church has looked at these scribes with scorn, and we should. They killed the Son of God. They rejected the only one capable of redeeming their sins. But we had better be careful. In a lot of ways, modern Christianity is far more scribe-like than we like to admit. And we'll get a little deeper into that later. So let's consider, how was Jesus different? What was it about Jesus that made the, scribe, that made the, the crowds be astonished? What made the crowds see that Jesus was different? As we consider the teachings of Jesus throughout the Gospels, we see some clear markers in His manner and in His teachings. The appearance of authority had as much to do with His manner as it did His actual message, but of course, they agreed with each other. First of all, Jesus spoke boldly about Himself as the Messiah. And Probably the best text for this is John 6. Uh, it's, it's elsewhere proclaimed, but clearly there. Jesus is clear that He was sent from the Father and is the coming Messiah who will provide salvation. Jesus isn't merely claiming to be a teacher or another prophet. He's claiming to be the Christ. He's claiming to be the one who will bruise the head of the serpent. But in his manner, so, so that was his message, but in his manner, we don't see him being necessarily uh, uh, dogmatic or dominant, but we see one of confident understanding. Jesus knows who he is, and he presents himself as that. Clearly and confidently. Second of all, Jesus spoke gospel truth. In the introduction to Jesus, he says, Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the truth. As Jesus interacted with people, we see him interacting with their physical needs, but he's also interacting with their spiritual needs. He often, especially in Mark, speaks of forgiving sins before healing the physical needs. He seeks out those who exercise faith and belief. A clear example of this is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus compassionately reaches into her life not simply to inform her of her sin, not simply to present himself as a better person, but he reaches into her life to offer her the gospel, to offer her living water. He could have rejected her in her sinfulness, but he spoke the gospel to her. And thirdly, Jesus confronted misrepresentations of the gospel. In Mark 7, we have the story of Jesus defending his di disciples against the frivolous roles of the Pharisees. 
and exposing their dismissal of true obedience. Yes, we didn't wash our hands before we ate some corn, but we don't make legal ways to not take care of our parents, is what Jesus is saying. True obedience interacts with us in our hearts and interacts with our true values. In Luke 20, we have Jesus using the parable of the wicked tenants to describe how the scribes and priests had begun to use the temple as a means of power and prestige. In that passage as well, we have the story of the widow giving her last money. And often we've, we've, we've given that story as an example of somebody who's given all, somebody who gave more because they gave everything. I wonder if there's a second meaning to that and that Jesus is accusing the scribes and Pharisees of robbing a woman of her last might and using it for their own benefit and glory. The temple was not a place of worship to God. It was a place of worship to the scribes and Pharisees. And this woman was being robbed. Jesus is going to confront that misconception. And fourthly, Jesus operated under the authority of the Father. John 4:34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus didn't come to create an earthly kingdom for himself. The devil tried that attraction. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And we see in his final days in the garden, he bows in obedience to the Father's will. And so there's a, a clear difference between who the scribes are and who Jesus is. The scribes are out to seek their own glory, to seek their own renown, to seek the the building of their earthly kingdom. And Jesus is about to rescue them from that. Because in reality, that's each of our hearts. If we seek for our own, as we are apt to do, Jesus calls us from that. So what does this difference mean for us? I think a question we have to consider is, um, are there modern-day scribes? Are we maybe acting as the scribes in some ways? And what would that look like? And I think all around us and among us, we see the same type of message seeking our approval. Modern academic Christians attempt to blend the truth of Scripture with the assumed wisdom of the age. The creation account must be interpreted to fit with what we know about origins through science. The understanding of personhood or the individual has shifted from being made in the image of God to being made in the image of 
your desires and your felt needs. The authority of Scripture has come under the authority of man. The human is the final judge of God. And the Scriptures must be corrected to fit into our understanding of who God is. And we see this continuing erosion of what is considered truth because it just doesn't fit into what we know to be true today. But in fact, we're creating a temple to ourselves. And we're simply forcing God and forcing Scripture to come to our temple. And just as there were legalist scribes there who demanded adherence to their understanding of the law, so today we have the same. Wear this type of clothing and be seen as holy. Live this particular way and God and His people will accept you. Associate with only certain kinds of people to keep yourself from the world. But that's similar to making truth for ourselves. In reducing the Christian life to a strict attempt at right living, many have created a means and a method of holiness that denies the Savior. In either of these, the gospel we preach is either one of self-atonement through creation of our own reality or self-atonement through the, create, through the keeping of the law. Both of these deny Christ as the only means of access to the Father. Thirdly, the scribes of that day sought to profit by their position. And today, we see an increasing commercial, commercialization of the gospel. You don't have to go far to see men peddling Christianity as a means of wealth. I found a number of gems. Uh, how about the Daniel Diet? The Daniel Diet is not just another diet book. This diet originates from the biblical scriptures of Daniel chapter 1. It looks at the mind, body, and spirit connection and how they affect our health and weight loss. It gives principles that are not only the scriptures centuries old, but also on modern day nutritional wisdom and empirical use. Daniel's diet bridges the 2,500 year gap between then and now. Here, buy the book and the 21 meals a week delivered to your door. And our world drinks it up. Wow, we can connect my diet to Daniel. And there's all manner of books and trinkets that seek to capitalize on us. I was uh, in Goodwill the other evening. And I was going through the books and I was amazed how many uh, women's study Bibles, men's study Bibles, women's this, men's that. Is the Bible different? Do we have to make a specific little Bible for every individual bit of people? Do we have to contextualize the Word of God? Is that really what it's about, or is it about creating the next bestseller? Creating the next have-to-have Bible so that 
such and such a publishing company can show a profit. Probably the largest example of that was a number of years ago with the prayer of Jabez. While a massive, massive commercial success was at best a misuse of Scripture. It preyed, pardon my pun, on the desire each one of us has to be wealthy and successful. And rather than help us battle that desire and put it to death, it encourages us to baptize it, all the while making its writer, at least the one on the cover, millions of dollars. The common theme in all of these ideas is the centrality of man. The scribes in Jesus' time and the modern-day scribes preach a gospel of human centrality. Jesus taught something quite different. Jesus taught a gospel-infused, God-centered truth. As God, as a member of the Trinity, He could simply speak. But how often do we see Him referring to Scripture? Jesus has the authority to speak directly to Satan. And He does that in some instances. But, but when Satan came to tempt Him, His response was to quote Scripture. And so for us today, if we are to teach a gospel that will astonish people and call them to Christ, we must teach as Christ did. I've got a list of items here to conclude on. Number one, let's be honest about ourselves. We are nothing special to claim wisdom or position. The Apostle Paul referred to himself as a clay pot, fully unworthy to carry this message. We are not somebody. No church appointment or ordination makes us somebody. We are each sinners saved by the grace of God. Second of all, we must speak gospel truth. Again, we're all tempted to make ourselves the, the source and originator of our message. Um, and you'll hear this in various ways. Um, God told me thus and so. Wow, you're a special person who hears directly from God. Or, I found this interesting thing and this unique understanding of this passage. We make ourselves the originator of truth. There is no originator of truth other than God. There is no reliable source of truth in our world except His Word. And so let's not speak our truth. Let's speak the gospel truth. And let's be careful to speak the gospel. Think back at the story of the woman at the well Imagine Jesus uh, talking about uh, the fact that it had been raining a lot and the well was full, or maybe it hadn't been raining a lot and the well wasn't full, or 
that, yeah, it's really an inconvenience that she has to carry all that water. And, and yeah, that's kind of a social issue, this Jewish-Samaritan relationship thing. That would probably be the conversation that we would all be tempted to have if we found ourselves in that situation. But no, Jesus goes right to her heart and speaks the gospel. And thirdly, when the gospel is misrepresented, don't allow it. When we tolerate the preaching of an adjusted gospel, we present a disfigured gospel to the world. When we preach inclusiveness and tolerance, we ignore the judgment throne to which all will stand before and give an account. When we teach works as a means or maintenance of salvation, we step on the glory of the blood of Christ. If that blood is not sufficient, there is nothing sufficient. And number four, it's not your message. The gospel is not your message. It's not yours to mold and fit into situations. The scribes made God's story their story. They rewrote it and made themselves the authority. They set up a a temple that exalted them, not God. The gospel is God's message. You are simply a mirror. You are simply a reflector of that message and that glory. The message is not for you to gain earthly anything. The message is for the building of the renown of God. The message is for the glory of the Creator. In conclusion, let us consider verses 23 and 24. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. What the scribes covered up, the demons knew. What the scribes could not see, the demons yelled. The demon shouted, you are the Son of God. Jesus' authority rested in God as his Son. And our authority as a church is similar. Only as we reflect, only as we accurately teach his word and faithfully show his glory, can we be a church that is acting and living in the authority of Christ. We don't do this on our own. We don't make this. God does. Shall we pray? Father, this morning as we consider your gospel, as we consider the life of Christ, we are first of all grateful that you have come to unworthy people. You have granted us a way to be saved. Father, we recognize and we confess that we often have made the gospel about ourselves.
but we've often attempted to gain glory for ourselves. Father, we repent of those times and we recognize that there is no authority but you. There is no truth but that what you give us. There is no way to live truly, to live eternally except through your Son. Father, help us to realize those things. Help us to seek your truth, to seek it in in your authority. May you call us away from serving ourselves. Pray that you would do this through Christ and through his Spirit's work in our lives. We pray this through Christ.